the difference between um, the way we live today and the way we lived 10 or 20 years ago is you just didn't have this device and you didn't have so many places where you went to see content. And if you think about television, it was a single channel, right? It's, it's a box. Um, you had to listen to what it was saying on, on maybe three or four channels that you had choices on. Now those choices are infinite. Ladies and gentlemen, wake up. Welcome to Wake Up With Focus, your home to learn all things digital, marketing, content, branding, and business development, finding out what's gold and what's old in the world of digitalization, hear from industry leaders, and discover how to market to those who matter most to your business. With your host, founder of Focus Recruitment and Focus Media, Belinda Agnew. Today on the podcast, we're chatting with Anthony Savakis. Now, some of you may know Anthony as a regular contributor to Forbes magazine. Others may recognize him as a CEO startup exec of the year in 2017. But what he's most known for and what we're really going to explore today is his work as a CEO of Tribe which is an innovative platform that helps marketers garner meaningful results from their influencer marketing campaigns. And without giving too much away right now in the introduction, let's give a warm welcome to Anthony. Thank you for being on the show, Anthony. I really appreciate it all the way from New York City. My pleasure. (laughs) The first question I'd like to know is, Tribe is a pretty big name and has done super well for themselves online. I want to know the story to how you came a part of Tribe as a CEO. How did that conversation happen between you and Jules Lund? Uh, for people that don't know that are listening, Jules Lund uh, is the founder of, of Tribe um, and Anthony is a CEO that pretty much runs everything of Tribe and you can correct me if I'm wrong. So how did that conversation happen? Because Jules is a pretty interesting character. <laughs> yeah, look, it's, uh, it happened about five years ago and um, uh, actually happened by a recruiter, uh, which is quite an uh, unusual way to do it at the start of a business. And, oh, and wow. certainly it's very unusual for a founder and CEO to be paired together uh, so early in, in the life of a business. And usually what happens is a founder uh, sort of creates the idea and builds the the initial business and takes it so far when when a a CEO might step in, whether it's it's two or three years down the line. But in the case of Jules, and and you know, Jules uh, has his uh, had his former TV profile, a, a amazing career on on television and radio, and uh, had this concept around Tribe that was built from his own experiences. He was uh, did the right thing and brought some some trusted advisors around the process. Uh, he wanted to turn it into a business, and I think very. Uh, honestly knew that he wasn't the person to run the business. Uh, and so with the help of his advisors, they undertook a search via a recruiter. Uh, my own background was pretty unique. I'd spent a lot of time in Europe. I'd built a couple of businesses myself, uh, one that was, I would call successful and probably one that wasn't successful and they, they netted each other out. But uh, I collected a lot of experience along the way and came back to Australia, worked in e-commerce and, and just sort of happened to be networking with the recruiter at the right time uh, to take a meeting about this opportunity, uh, obviously meet Jules through the process, meet the advisors and, and present a strategy for what was a, a how to turn a concept into a business. And at that point in time, you know, it's very, very blue sky. And I think one of those key things that I realized at, at um, five years ago was 
in the startup space in Australia, it, it, it was very nascent. So it wasn't like a, um, you know, a high profile founder could go out and look for a, a five or 10 year experienced startup CEO in Australia because literally the, the industry wasn't that old. So I had a, a really good collection of, of experience in my own entrepreneurship and working in digital. I'd studied marketing. I'd, I'd had some formal business studies as well. And I uh, was able to, to get the opportunity to present and, and presented a strategy that, that, that caught their attention. And, and then Jules and I sort of came together and, and built the business thereafter. Wow. So the conversation or I guess the initiation was from a recruiter. Yeah, absolutely. Did they headhunt you or were you guys already in contact and then it kind of happened? Uh, we, we were in contact. I was working in, in a fast growth e-commerce business and I'd, I'd had a really good run there and picked up a lot of experience. But I felt, I think I was early 30s, I, you know, I really wanted to take the next step and, and grab an opportunity and didn't really feel encumbered by, I don't know, things like a mortgage or family that, that you know, yeah. really would you throwing yourself into a into an opportunity and so uh, there's no greater opportunity than than a than an idea on a piece of paper with with good people behind it and and at that stage I had a very uh, small amount of funding mm-hmm. um, you know I felt that it was look I can do this for probably six or 12 months and and see how it goes you know extremely unproven it's it's just an idea um, but if it goes well then you know who knows what it can be and and you know five years later, uh, we're now in uh, Australia, UK, US. We've got sort of 50, 60 people around the world and, um, you know, finding our, our feet and, and doing very well through this through this period that is a, a challenging year. Did you end up tapping into Asia? Did that happen? Uh, no, we looked at it uh, a, a couple of times. Um, yeah. Sort of about two years in and then maybe about four or five years in. Uh, and we we undertook some studies. We did a lot of data analysis on certain metrics in in uh, various economies around Asia, and it, it was just one of those things that uh, it seemed to make sense uh, when we discussed it because social media is such a, a, a big um, industry in Asia, and, and everyone's on mobile, and all those dynamics suit our product. Uh, but we really just felt it was it's such a fragmented place. Uh, mm-hmm. So each country is individual, each, each has their own language and cultures. And, you know, our, our solution is a technology solution, um, which really relies on a scaled rollout. And so when, when we decided to go into a region, and, and the first region was the US, uh, mm-hmm. UK, sorry, and, and, and then into the US, uh, we really want to go deep in that region. So it isn't about working with... I don't know, five or 10 clients. It's about working with 500 to 1,000 clients. And, and Got it. we feel there's, there's a much better capability of doing that when mm. you're um, more concentrated in, in the right regions and r- rather than trying to spread yourself thinly across, I don't know, the nine countries of Southeast Asia. Um, yeah, which, which it's hard. Each one is, is individual in, in itself. Because mm, I know you guys spoke about it uh, years ago about tapping into Asia. And I was like, wow, that's, that's going to be big. I wonder what that's yeah, going to look like. Uh, yeah. Okay. yeah it's, and Asia is uh, a great economy and, and, you know, suits a lot of different businesses. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the other aspect that I, I have to mention is, is, is language, right? It's, mm. you know, a lot of Asia uh, or certainly say parts of Singapore and, and the developed cities in, in Southeast Asia, you can get by in English, but as I said, you know, we really wanted 
we want to infiltrate countries as we go into them. Of and so the, the, uh, myself, Jules, being able to understand the language, being able to talk to customers, being able to read feedback or, or you know, forums from, from users is, is just a really important part of understanding how the product's working and, and what we might need to change per region. And mm-hmm. so losing that ability um, at an early stage business, uh, it was too much of a risk. Makes sense. Um, so to the listeners, for people that don't know Tribe, what's the pitch? Who is Tribe and what does Tribe do? We're a tech platform uh, that connects brands with content creators and social media influencers. Effectively, a brand comes in on one side, a, a creator will uh, create a piece of content for them, uh, a piece of branded content. Um, that content might live on social media. It might be licensed and used on their website, might be used in their e-commerce. It, it can even uh, land on billboards. But effectively, the problem we solve is a, a faster, cheaper, and a more scaled way of creating branded content for brands who uh, really sort of want to advertise and reach their customers through digital touch points. And um, are you guys thinking about evolving that platform at the moment, like as in bringing more investors in to think of another strategy or, uh, sorry, a, a problem to solve? Or are you just keeping it? So, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we actually solve a number of problems. If you, if you think about um, how valuable a, a piece of content is or how much utility a piece of content has, um, as I said, it can be used in a, in a promotional way, which is pushing it out onto social media. It can be used uh, in an informational way, which is taking the asset and maybe putting it on your website or using it in a blog or whatever it might be. So um, what we're, uh, where we're investing is, is giving our customers the opportunity to utilize the content in more ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we started, there was more of a single use to it. So um, a brand would want influential people to talk about them on social media and that's a single use case mm-hmm. whereas now we probably cater to four or five different use cases and they're all accessible within the same platform so it's not like we're trying to um, uh, move outside of the realm of content content's always been at our core and we've created a model that as far as we can tell produces more branded content than than anyone else mm-hmm. uh, out there um, but what we, of course, want to do is is let our brands utilize that content in more and more ways, but always accessible through the lens of of content and starting with content uh, and uh, obviously through the tri platform. Cool. That's dope. And going into the phase of, um, you know, tribe, like we're going into the questions, we do a ton of content ourselves and we uh, just pivoted. We're actually a recruitment agency and we pivoted into um, a digital agency for brands based on demand because we were just creating a ton of content and people were like, we want your content, make us a brand like you have made your brand. Um, so, how important do you think content is in twenty twenty, moving into twenty twenty one, for businesses? Look, it's it's, it's such uh, a broad question, but what I mean by that is, it could be written audio or video. Like, how important is it to get your message out now? Um, because I truly believe, you know, digitizing your brand now and going into 2021, especially people need to start doing more content and, and creating an actual brand rather than just relying on the transaction. Um, I just think it's, it's very different. Yeah. You know, one of the expressions I use is we, we, we live in a content driven world. If, if, 
these devices that everyone now has in their pockets, um, you know, there was a time when they were functional. It was to communicate with someone or, or um, you know, then it became, okay, I'm going to get a little bit of information from it. But, but now it is everyone's world. It is um, the answer to problems. It is the directions to, to getting somewhere. And it is actually a, a, a time filler, whether it's games or social media or, or taking photos. It it's really becomes a, um, a utility that, that no one can live without in most cases. Um, effectively, every, every instance or every time you, you um, make contact with the phone, you're seeing an experience, right? It's, it's, it's a piece of content that is telling you something is going to, going to occur. And the difference between um, the way we live today and the way we lived 10 or 20 years ago is you just didn't have this device and you didn't have so many places where you went to seek content. Um, if you think about television, it was a single channel, right? It's, it's a box. Um, you had to listen to what it was saying on, on maybe three or four channels that you had choices on. Mm-hmm. Now those choices are infinite. Um, and people access access them infinitely, and every one of those channels that you access, whether it's LinkedIn, whether it's um, YouTube, whether it's it's Google Maps, um, it requires content to, to to give you what you want. And obviously, in the case of brands, um, the better they can produce content and serve that content through the through the channels that are important to them. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what's going to start to get people captured and, and keep people on your channel and keep people listening to your messages. Now, the, the, uh, I think one of those classic questions is, is, it, is, is, is more content better? Is, is yeah. the right content better? Is less content that. better? Yeah, it's, it's, I think that's up to the individual. I, I don't think there's any um, hard or fast answer. If you look at someone like Gary Vee, for him, more content is better. And he just spews out content that's his strategy and Mm -hmm. some of it catches some of it doesn't um but i think for most people where uh resources are probably limited time is limited and and even specialization is is somewhat limited it's far more important to get the right content out through the right channels and um the beauty of digital is you'll you'll be able to tell very easily if it's the right content because you'll see people engaging with it you'll see comments you'll see views or impressions depending what channel you're using and uh, for, for anyone who's sort of entering that space or, or or maybe active in that space it's really a learning process um, the you know you can try different styles one style might be uh, more heavily produced content um, done by professionals another might be holding a camera in in vertical mode and, and producing a, a story as you're walking down the street and you it's very common you'll find it doesn't necessarily mean the higher production value is the stuff that works true um often often the easiest to produce is the stuff that works but at the at the bottom of it all i think the the main theme is you just need to be giving something of value to the people who you want to reach Mm -hmm. that that value might be this podcast it might be um uh, advice uh, via a blog or it might just be a, an uplifting thought of the day uh, i think that's the the key to to a content strategy and would you say um people like obviously yourselves like tribe you do a ton of content and you do um i think it's what is it uh the pajamas program is it the pajamas marketers in pajamas yeah that's right marketers in pajamas with facebook right 
you guys run a series. Uh, yeah, it started with Facebook and, and it's um, we've got a few more sponsors since then. Yeah, cool. Uh, and you run that series, I think, on a weekly basis on LinkedIn as far as I see. I don't know if that's a thing still. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, there's a great story behind that. That was, you know, in the, in the I guess, the scramble of, of COVID when, when everyone's sort of feeling like, hey, we, we need to be doing something. Um, we, wanted to, we wanted to give something to our community. We wanted to add value to their lives. And, mm. uh, um, you know, thankfully we have a, the ultimate professional in Jules who, who knows how to run interviews and, and knows how to get in touch with people. And, and he has a very casual and, and um, light style that, that, you know, he felt was perfect for the moment when, um, you know, there's, there's this, there was a flood of content that was hitting everyone's social media feeds that mm. was um, really trying to, trying to, brands trying to stay, stay relevant. Mm. Um, so for us as a business and, um, you know, that was, I guess, B2B content, we just wanted to produce something that was, we felt like we were giving information. We felt like it was interesting. Mm. We felt like it was digestible. We could give people the time to watch it in, in their own time. It's, I think they're 20 to 30 minute interviews and yeah, uh, yeah not supposed to be too preachy or, or no, just you conversation. Know, heavy, heavy in regards to content. Yeah. Just, just light and, and with a, with a tone of marketing and some really interesting people from around the world who mm. uh, has, have experienced so much. And even the content itself in the first series was very much about the reaction to COVID. And, and that's what we sort of felt most marketers would want to hear from other marketers, what they were doing. Mm. Um, now it's, it's become far more explicit exploratory around innovation and, and ideas and and um, still got a lot of legs and the feedback we get on that content is, is just spectacular. No, it's really cool content. I've seen it. I've watched a, a few bits and pieces. It's really valuable. Um, and with the tri-brand, you push out a lot of stuff like through the, the programs and the series and, and content. Um, I see that you have a really big personal brand as well as Jules. You guys do a lot on a personal level uh, representing tribe. How much has that helped you uh, and Jules, or let's just talk about you for a second. How much has that helped you, um, you know, creating this personal brand and creating this presence, like doing these podcasts, it's about yourself, even though you're a part of tribe, but it, it's really about Anthony. How has that helped you um, or how, how has it helped, sorry, tribe um, as a brand by creating such a personal brand like you have? Well, that's the first time I've heard that I've got a, a good personal brand. So thank you. you. Do. Thank, <laughs> thank you for that. Um, look, I, I think in the first instance, I was probably just hanging off the coattails of Jules. Um, you, you know, oh, he, come he on, was... give yourself some credit. <laughs> you do great. No, I, I mean, I, I don't. I don't sort of say that in in any other way. Then I think it was the truth. You know, he had he had always had a big audience on on LinkedIn. Um, you, you know, he was the the guy who got invited to speak at uh, marketing events, and that um, comes with content, right? So mm. you, you get invited on stage at a marketing event. There's photos. There's there's videos, and most most of those events now, um, well, they should be very smart to create content snippets that that speakers can then share with their audiences because yeah. that ultimately is, shares the event or do live streaming or whatever it is. So uh, I certainly think Jules was a really good and early practitioner of that. And then um, in various ways, it probably flowed through to me, but I don't particularly um, invest a lot of time in it. In it. And, and most of the time, I just 
uh, I guess, apply a lens of, hey, um, is this going to be helpful to, to the business or potentially helpful to my network or, or mm-hmm. to people in my network? And so um, things like podcasts, I, I always enjoy because it's talking about the things that I, that I love um, surrounding Tribe. Um, and I know that it's, it's, it's also helping other businesses, whether it's through listening or, or, or being able to share that content. Uh, I was fortunate enough to pick up a column uh, with Forbes and that was purely just, you know, I was, I, I, I'd contact, I was speaking to a journalist about something. Uh, I pitched him an idea. He said, look, we don't do op-eds, but, you know, how about I, I get you as a, as a contributor? And, and that sort of just become a channel that I have. And uh, it's a great outlet um, when I have the time to, to just share ideas with the Forbes community. And then, of course, um, the value of that is, is not just, hey, the, the, the community of Forbes, it's also reflecting it back into, into my yeah. community on in so that you know my ideas can can be shared that way so um i think i've sort of just picked up things along the way and and some of them come uh because tribe is expanding and and um you know known certainly in the in the startup space and in the marketing community uh but yeah it's always um i try to put it through the lens of is this helping the business um and and in most things that i do uh, are um to that effect Cool. Um, I'm super intrigued uh, about your backstory. I want to just talk about that for a second. When you mentioned you had started up a couple of companies, one worked and one didn't, Mm -hmm. and then you went into um, becoming a CEO of Tribe. I mean, how did that happen? Like, how did you know? I don't know if you do any side hustles, by the way, but how did you know that entrepreneurship or I guess, you know, running a company as a founder and, and running it as a CEO as well. How did you know that that wasn't for you? What was that kind of click? Like that was cool for a minute, but now I just want to become a CEO of a great brand and a great team and just kind of grow that. Like what happened there? Yeah. I I mean, I think there is, there's quite a distinction between a founder and a CEO in, in yeah. you know, the the true skill set and I uh, you know Jules is an, a phenomenal founder because he's 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 a visionary and he's he's creative and he's a storyteller um I'm far more strategy and structure and, and execution um but th- those two skill sets are, are extremely complement complementary and they've been super helpful in in us um and what we've been able to do with tribe but um you know when I started my career I must uh, I'm 38 now, so let's say 16, 17 years ago. Um, I was always ambitious. Uh, I went into, I studied marketing. I went into um, marketing roles in in larger organisations. Um, I, I found it frustrating um, to sort of be put in a, in a pathway mm-hmm. and needing to. Okay, at your 12 month interview, um, we're going to talk to you about, or sorry, your 12 month review, we're going to talk to you about these oh. boxes that we've told you to tick. And, and if you do them and, and we approve, yeah. then you'll move up to this next, next sort of junior management level. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I, I think rightly or wrongly, I probably thought I was always ahead of where I actually was. And I remember one of the early feedbacks I got from, from one of the management was, you gotta you gotta walk before you you run, um, and I think that's important in some ways. But it just it just never sat sat comfortably with me, and so um, 
early in my 20s, I, I decided I needed to see the world and, and went over, thought I would do something different and, and landed in London and, and uh, got a job uh, like every other Australian and um, probably spent about a year there before I realized I didn't really consider myself to be seeing the world, just okay. having that experience. And so I actually went east and I went to um, Poland of all places and the, the intention of Poland was uh, to take a bit of a career break. I think I was sort of 24 maybe at that age and I hadn't really stopped working since since high school. I'd gone high school straight into university, straight into um, straight into work and so I thought mm-hmm. I'll take a career break for three or six months, um, teach English to, to foreigners and, and just sort of work out what I wanted to do and um, as is often the case in Poland, I, I uh, met a girl early and, and fell in love and decided to stay but but sort of told her look I can't stay as an English teacher I've got to really do something for myself and this is the opportunity to start a business and so it it was sort of just a series of circumstances that gave me that opportunity but I have to admit it was being out of my comfort zone and being out of my home I felt there was less boundaries um, or hurdles to actually just go out and do something it was almost like well if it doesn't work no one's really going to know back at home so I can I can really sort of try uh, okay. something and the, the first business and the successful business has got nothing to do with my background I actually started a, uh, a building company and it oh, was cool. purely yeah purely opportunistic there was a huge property boom in in Poland there was a lot of foreign investors who had who had fueled that pop property boom, and um, they were buying apartments. But all of those apartments, in some way, shape, or form, needed um, building work done, whether it's kitchens or bathrooms or, or sort of interior design. And, and I had zero skills in any of those things, but I just saw there was a glut of of, of people who needed work, and so I um, got someone to build me a website. Um, I, I sort of taught myself AdWords and, and started. Um, finding various blogs and, and, and pointing people to my website. And then I went around to all the real estate agencies who had sold all this property. And I said, look, for anyone who needs building work, uh, if you put them, uh, send them to me, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a commission. And <laughs> unbelievably, no one had really thought of that um, in, in, in that part really? of the world. And so within, within a year, um, I th- Started the business, I think it took about three, started the business by building the website. It took about three months to get the, the first customer. And I think within a year, I had about 32 contractors all over the country just doing building projects for, for all these uh, foreign customers. And, and I, I very rarely met my customers. It was all done over phone or email um, because they were dealing with people in a, in a, in a foreign country. They, they appreciated the fact that I was speaking to them in native English and my website looked really slick and I was, you know, fast to respond on, on email. And I was sort of in my mid-20s and, and it sort of suddenly went to this quite large business that, that was dealing with multiple, um, multiple customers at any one time and, and uh, dozens wow. of contracts. And so I sort of just ran that. Um, it, it did very well with with the property boom, but it was in, in and amongst the time of the GFC. So the boom was always going to end. And then I moved into, um, I built an online store selling furniture. Uh, and I had sort of got that idea because um, all of these customers were asking me to furnish their apartments as well uh, for, for the rental market. And so I, I naturally felt there was a gap and I started importing furniture from China and uh, built a website and, and felt 
this was this was my big one, right? I was going to build this website. I was going to have this amazing um, logistics system. I was going to people were going to buy furniture online, and I was going to transport it to them seamlessly. Mm. And then I would I would um, comfortably be able to put my feet up and count how much money I was earning on a, on a dashboard on a beach in Thailand. And so that that um, the reality of that not happening um, was quite quick. Uh, and so I was, I had the two businesses running in parallel and, uh, the money I was making off the first business was, was funding the second business. And, and the second business was, it was just so difficult to, yeah. to, to get it to a point, um, that would consistently, uh, be profitable. Um, but I, I felt that the, the lessons I'd learned in the first one in making it work and, and the lessons I learned in the, in the second one in not being able to make it work. Uh, were both extremely valuable, and and you know I was I, I didn't treat either of them as as anything more than experience, um, and it was a great experience. I was young, uh, and and I'd sort of built up my confidence in certain ways, and and learnt lessons in certain ways, and then took that and came back to Australia, worked in e-commerce before before this tribe opportunity, and that's you know that's where I sort of talked about those perfect dynamics of um, you know what what does a startup CEO look like. Um, in in the best situation, I think a startup CEO has had wins and has had losses, um, and and can bring both to the table from an experience point of view. Wow! So you didn't have like a moment of this is hard, and I just can't run a business. I need to just find a great person and a great brand to work for. You didn't have like that moment. No, not really. Although, you know, I. I think I don't think I have the that founder, true founder quality to just think mm. in in multiple dimensions and really really visionary. I, yeah. I you know I really um, get energized off Jules's vision, um, but that's amazing. I don't I don't replicate it, and mm. and you know I I really enjoy taking his vision and sort of breaking it down and and, and putting commercial layers over it or, or thinking it. through. It. Customer, customer viewpoint, but but really that sort of very big picture vision is is I just think it's a, it's a very unique skill set. I, I never sort of felt it was mine, and and so in starting a business and those businesses I started in Poland, they weren't particularly creative. They were just really well executed. Uh, sorry, the mm. first one certainly was. I think the second one was well executed. It just didn't work. Mm. Um, but yeah, they, they they weren't particularly they were opportunistic more than more than Got you it. know brand new models or, or or a new way of doing something and and um you know with tribe we actually are doing things in a very different way we've got this platform approach it, it, it's it produces content like like nobody else does um and that really comes from from that founder quality yeah that's super interesting it just goes just goes to show how important it is to have a great team around you um, and and great people that you can rely on. And moving into that, like team is super important and culture is huge. And I'm sure at Tribe, you guys have a great culture um, based on, you know, your your personality and jewels. How did you find it throughout, you know, um, the pandemic? And I, and I know it's really super overused, but how did you guys cope as a culture and as a team? Did you have to let people go? Um, and how did you survive that? And what did that look like? Yeah, look, we, we, we made changes like, like most businesses and, and um, 
there was changes in in regards to headcount, although we obviously minimised that to the to the greatest extent, and there was also wage wage changes as well. Um, and yes, we do have a, have a strong culture. Um, I, I find it always hard to. Uh, really quantify that, although we do engagement surveys and, and you sort of can get a baseline measure on, on you know, how happy um, the, the company is or, or, or how much engaged they are. But, you know, what I've found with culture, certainly in this experience, it, it's, it, it helps to make tough decisions because culture allows you to flex to a degree. So a strong culture allowed us to flex to move to remote working relatively seamlessly. A strong culture allowed us to um, our teams to accept changes uh, in the way, you know, headcounts and, and wages because we were super transparent about it and, and they understood it and we've always been transparent about, you know, what's going well and what, it, what isn't going well. Um, the strong culture allowed us to maintain a sense of innovation Whilst much of the world was was sort of panicking, um, so it, it isn't necessarily something that adds um, quantifiable value at every point in time. But but often in in times of stress, uh, it adds quantifiable value in in um, ensuring things don't fall apart. Now, um, you know, I know a lot of businesses did does do extremely well through these times, and a lot uh, are struggling. What one thing for sure is. You know, we've noticed it just changes. So the first two or three months was very different to, to the next two or three months and, and very different to the last two or three months. And we've got a, a, a novel challenge where uh, I think we have offices in, in five countries. Um, it's almost each of those countries is, is at a different stage. Melbourne was in a, a heavy lockdown when, when London was traveling around Europe enjoying summer. Now London goes straight back into lockdown almost to, to the week that, that Melbourne comes out of it. And, and in the middle of it all, we've got America and New York, especially um, going through their own uh, situation plus elections. So mm. it's not just um, experiencing the year collectively, uh, you're experiencing it in, in different ways um, across our entire organization. And our entire organization is very connected. So um, I think you might have in three or four different regions. And so you've got to be able to balance one team member who's taking their holidays whilst other team members aren't allowed um, beyond five kilometers from their house, uh, which is, which is just a really interesting dynamic and, and, you know, um, no, no playbooks for it. Um, but we've tended to, um, you know, over communicate, be transparent, be really empathetic, be really understanding. And, and I think on those principles have done quite well through, through the period. Did you guys have to pivot quickly on systems for people to work remotely? And what systems were you guys using the most? Yeah, we, we didn't, to be honest. Oh, you um, didn't? Okay. No, we, we were set up on on Slack. We've been uh, using okay. Zoom for two, for two years. Um, you know, we actually also, all of us, pretty much all of our sales meetings are conducted over Zoom. So all the, all the collateral was set up for that anyway. And, and we had a fairly flexible working from home policy to, to begin with. So it was almost just like an extended working from home. Mm. Um, not to say there wasn't other variables that, that, that came into it, but... Um, I mean, the Zoom thing uh, is, you know, I, I tend to use the expression we invested in Zoom two or three years ago. And, and it is an investment because as a distributed company with different time zones and different offices, mm. we just needed to make sure everyone had the capacity to communicate as easily as possible with it, with someone else. 
Um, and obviously pre-COVID uh, in different countries, that's best done by video. And, and mm. I guess once COVID hit, it, it just allowed people in the same country or city to, to do it when they when they couldn't otherwise meet face to face. But it's it's um, you know there's there's a cap with Zoom, and 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 we notice that you lose the capacity to have more creative conversations or more open-ended conversations because your Zoom meeting tends to tends to be time-bound. Time mm. It tends to be agenda-bound. Um, no one really wants to. Um, the, the small talk ability on, on Zoom is much harder. Yeah. Especially even if you've got six people on a Zoom, um, it's very different to having six people in a room because you can see the visual cues and you can know when it's your turn to speak, whereas on Zoom... It's um, hard. You, it's much harder. And so uh, it's functional um, and you can run a business, but I think it does have a cap in regards to the, the true flow of information across different parts of the business or within teams. And so, mm. um, you know, now that uh, parts of our, our, our offices are, are opening back up, you know, we're super conscious of really trying to make sure we're, we're maintaining those bigger picture thinking uh, type meetings and trying to meet up where we're allowed to do so just to, to ensure people have that outlet. And it's, a, it's not even for the purpose of business. People want to think big they, and they, they, they want to have, have the ability to do that. And if all you're doing is, is attending 30-minute Zoom meetings with, a, with an agenda, um, you get trapped in that world uh, very quickly. So... Um like I know we could talk a ton about culture and there's so much that I would love to talk about and pick your brain on because, you know, obviously you're the CEO of Tribe and there's so many things that you uh, have come across that others probably haven't seen. But what would be, I guess, the three important keys or uh, things or advice that you could give to a CEO or a founder to run a great team or a great culture? So, uh, look, I'll, I'll try and answer that question through 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 the lens of, I guess, what, what we did at Tribe mm-hmm. um, around culture. Um, and at the start, we didn't do anything, to be honest. Like it, 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 it just eventuated in a way where it was a reflection of our personalities. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, Jules has got a phenomenal personality in, in its size and and in its you know, he brings people into his world. Um, so there wasn't, we never had to manufacture anything. We never had to write a culture strategy or a culture deck. Yeah. Um, and I think at early stage businesses, um, you sort of tend to pick up or you tend to uh, hire the people who want to come along on your journey, which are probably people very similar to yourself or similar age or similar energy levels and excitement levels. So, um, certainly at the start, um, when we, when we kicked off, it was, um, it was just let it be. Um, and, and the culture sort of formed around us rather than us trying to form the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the second element, and I, I don't think this is anything too, too innovative, innovative, but especially between Jules and I, um, in that unique relationship. Uh, as a as a founder and a CEO, and and the huge amount of trust involved mm. from from day one, uh, we, we built that, and and it it didn't just occur naturally. And um, you know, the first two or three months was 
uh, us trying to work each other out and us trying to work out which was which were our domains and um, you know who was making decisions in what what circumstances. Um, we had a had a moment where we sort of came together about three months in, and there was a little bit of tension. I wouldn't say a lot of tension, but you know it was clear that some things were working, some things were were a bit clunkier in in the way that we worked together. And we just made a commitment to over communicate with each other, and um, that meant that um, anything that was really going on in the business at that time, and, and at that time it was really just the two of us and, and maybe the, the first one or two employees, um, we would just share it with the other. So it might be BCCing on an email, it might be forwarding something, it might be a, a call at the end of every day, uh, text message, whatever it is. But we felt like, hey, if we both keep each other totally across what the other one's doing, not in a policing way by any means. It was more just, hey, let's just share the information um, that it made us feel super comfortable um, about what was happening and, and really sort of allowed us to build the trust. And mm. um, what we developed um, was just a natural inclination to, to share between ourselves and, and also just discuss between ourselves. And, um, you know, we have our, our areas of special specialisation. It doesn't mean when Jules comes up with an, uh, an idea um, I don't have a meaningful uh, input into that and, and, and can help him shape it. And likewise, if I'm making a decision that's that's numbers-based or financials-based or whatever it is, I still run it by him just, just for a sense check. And so that over-communication between the two of us especially is was pretty foundational to the successful relationship we have. Mm-hmm. And then the third aspect, which I uh, has sort of become a mantra of my, my um, leadership style and, and the way I like to communicate with the business is just transparency yeah um and you know you realize i think many people have a have a little bit of a barrier to being transparent um potentially on how is this going to make me look or Mm. um you know not everyone needs to know everything and 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 that is a case in some situations but um i just find being transparent is so much easier um, it is. It's easier to have a conversation in good times. It, it's much easier to have a conversation in bad times. Um, you know, that transparency goes, you know, up the chain. If, if I'm talking to, to the board, it goes down the chain. If I'm, I'm doing a company presentation and, and, and sort of talking to the entire group, mm. uh, I, I just like to tell people what's going on. And, and that through that comes trust and, and through that people um, really understand the, the moving parts of a business and, you know, in, in don't get me wrong, we've had a great times, we've had amazingly challenging times and, and that will continue um, mm-hmm. uh, in, in both ways in, in, uh, for, for the foreseeable future. But, um, yeah, once you sort of create that element of transparency or the expectation of transparency, um, most issues just become much easier to communicate uh, no matter who you're talking to. No, I agree. It's like any relationship, transparency is huge. And if you don't have that, it most likely will fail. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and look, I think even a a great source of stress for many people is probably holding things in. Yeah. Um, And and when you realize, hey, I'm going to share this with people. Yeah. um, You can almost like the moment you do this, this sense of relief uh, um, sort of Mm -hmm. comes across you and, um, you know, there are certain things that are, that are much, much harder to share. But, um, yeah, when, when you sort of have that transparency, that barrier of, oh, do I hold this in, do I hold this in, um, isn't really there anymore. Well, it's only a burden on yourself, um, you know, and it just makes things worse, worse for yourself. So I agree. Um, 
I just want to go into the the funding side of things before I uh, end it off with my last questions. Um, so when Tribe started, uh, was this bootstrapped? Uh, how was this kind of worked out in terms of did you have an angel investor? Did you have a couple of VCs? And if you can run through that process and in regards to corporatization, how far in did you corporatize and are you corporatized? And if so, how many advisors do you have at the moment? So, uh, look, we were fairly we were fairly established from the start. So, Jules um, sort of built the concept and and invested a little bit of his money and time in in, in doing that. Um, he brought advisors in. They probably were the first layer of corporatization, set it up as a business, um, you know, established a, a small board and, and raised a little bit of seed funding mm-hmm. uh, from uh, high net worth individuals who had um, knew the advisors and, and knew of Jules and, and effectively what they were investing in was an idea, mm. an idea in the people and, and, and a trust in the ability to for those people to be able to execute on the idea. Um, with that money, they were able to hire a CEO, which was me, and then I sort of joined joined the idea, and um, it became an operational business um, once once we'd built the prototype and launched it into market. And so once that occurred, um, we've been fairly consistent with with funding. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done that through uh, a mix of high net worths and institutional funds. Uh, both in Australia and and also in the UK and, and a little bit in the in the US and it sounds like a lot it it is a lot but you sort of you know we're five years in and 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 you go down that path and it and it sort of opens doors to to more opportunities mm-hmm. uh, it, it certainly changes a business um, the, the intention of the funding is to is to accelerate and and invest and in our case invest in the product and and product is a really um, costly thing to invest in. It takes time. It takes money in hiring people. Um, it takes a, a, a lot of effort, and, and with that effort comes IP. And so, the first five years, we've been heavily investing in this product. Um, and of course, then you layer on sales and marketing. That marketing thereafter, and the intention of the investor coming in is trusting the vision. And, mm-hmm. and you know, our vision is. Is is big. It's it's really around disrupt, disrupting the way marketers source branded content, um, and uh, we're sort of on the pathway to doing that. But st- it still feels like uh, we're nowhere near that. It actually feel, still feels like the marketing community has got to progress itself to really take full use of of the product that we're building. Um, but yeah, it's it's been a great journey with our investors. We've got phenomenal investors. Um, their their understanding they you know they ride the ups and downs um the in the same way I'm I'm transparent with them I send them uh, probably quarterly updates but also available on the phone and, and speak to them and um you know once you bring in outside investment uh, I think a layer of governance is is pretty much mandatory mm. um so that would be a board and 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 certain um uh certain um, levels of, of um, decision-making responsibility, mm. um, decisions that, say, the board has to has to confer on or, or decisions that sort of fall outside of that. And um, we, I don't think we did anything um, too, too different. We just effectively put, put in some layers that said, hey, now there's a board and now there's a constitution and now there's a shareholders agreement. Yeah. And, 
um, it, it just gives structure and confidence to, to attract funds mm. to say, yeah, we're a well-run business and you'll get the numbers and um, here's the rules of engagement um, so that people are obviously comfortable not just with the people and the idea and, and the traction but also the, the way the business is operated. Yeah, interesting. And with the advisors, do you give them shares or do you pay retainer or are they just happy to become an advisor? Uh, it, it, it depends. Okay. It depends on the relationship, how much work's involved. But obviously, once once you're a little bit bigger, um, whether it's it's um, investment capital or or the value of the equity, um, the idea is you can you can use that mm. cash or equity to to help to bring people in and around your business uh, who can help you do the things that. Uh, um, you know, the skill set that you have within the business maybe aren't capable of. And, and we've got some great advisors. One's um, uh, Keith Weed, who's the, the former CMO of Unilever. He's oh, a, yeah. a Forbes-ranked uh, most influential CMO in the world. And, and he came on as, a, as an investor and an advisor. So um, Jules and I catch up with him every month or two. And, and you know, he makes introductions to other CMOs around the world, um, but also helps in, in things around brand and, and, and I guess, marketing trends. We've got another advisor who's um, been part of a, of a gaming company in Silicon Valley, Valley called Unity. Uh, he's the head of growth there. He was the head of growth there. And that, they just went through a $20 billion IPO um, oh, cool. on the New York Stock Exchange. Wow. And so you know, he's right at the front line of... Um, the most advanced uh, software offerings in in, um, in in gaming in in the US, and um, you know a lot of the principles he used and learnt to help build that company over four or five years to get to that point. Um, we get the we get the experience and the learnings, and and we do that on a. He's a bit more frequent. We sort of catch up weekly or, or fortnightly, but it's only just sort of 30, 60 minute increments, and mm. and quite. Um, strategic and, and tactical in, in, in the way that we use that advice. So those advisors are, are really a great part of the business, as are the board who, who provide, um, you know, different opinions. There's, mm. there's supposed to be um, people with the same background. It's, it's really supposed to be a mix so that you can draw upon um, different people at, at various times. Cool. And let's uh, let's wrap up the last questions because I'm cautious at the time. Uh, so the first three marketing hacks that everybody must know, and that could be this year or 2021, but what are the three hacks that everyone just needs to know on a personal brand level and a business brand level? Okay, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure I'd describe them as hacks. I'd more, maybe more tips, but uh, tips or hacks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so, and I just sort of I had a thought about this obviously before we before we jumped on this uh, podcast. So, the first one is it is it really a marketing hack? I think it's just know your customer, and and yeah, um, it's a it's a really important part before before you really get started, and and knowing your customer is either through interviews or potentially it's data points. But it, it, instead of trying to guess what they want, th- there's a very simple way to, to ask them. Um, and I think doing that a, as a starting point will help your marketing activity exponentially because you, you'll get straight to the, to, the, to the root of what you're trying to solve for. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one, and this was given advice to me when I started my first business, was, was um, search and AdWords. And just it, it is the simplest and easiest way to get started with, with marketing um, you only pay for for stuff that works. Um, you you get to sort of see and test 
how things work um, and uh, search uh, and search via Google is just it's so ubiquitous. Um, it's really something that most businesses who want to be found online um, should think about. Uh, and the third one, um, you know, I'll talk about influencer marketing to a, to a degree and um, influencer marketing is something we do at Tribe, although, it's, as I said, it's always about the content for us. You know, the thing that we know about influencers is they are so much more valuable than just a picture holding up a product, sending it out to an audience. And, and that's the product that we built where um, uh, an influencer is creating content. Um, it's, it's creating content about the, what, the reason people love your product or, or the way that they consume it. Um, that content, yeah, can be published on, on social media. It can also be used on your website. It can be used in your Amazon store. It can be used on billboards. You can run it in ads and test it against content that your um, creative agency has produced. And so the versatility of, of something like an influencer or a content creator, um, when you think outside of that, that first dimension is really, really powerful. Cool. Um, those are really good three hacks. I guess the first one really stood out is knowing your customer because I feel a lot of people just put out content based on what they think is good or best uh, without actually asking what the customers want. It's just like ask your customers. Like, yeah, what do you want to see more? What do you want to hear more? And then just put that out. Um, and let's, let's uh, finish it off with the last question before we let you go. Uh, what are the three things to avoid when putting out content online? Yeah, and look, I think related to, to the three I just spoke about. So the first one I, I thought about was just not, not to spend money blindly. Um, mm. you, you know, use those validation points. Uh, spending money on on um, social advertising or, or online advertising is really really powerful, um, but the the purpose of or the, or the main benefit of those platforms is you, you get the data points on what's working and what's not. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can certainly be um, very controlled with the way that you spend. And um, the, the second the second thing is oh, I much prefer doing stuff myself rather than sort of um, blindly uh, really sort of. Um, going to a big agency or anything like that and, and really trying to learn what's happening now. Uh, that might mean you share an account. It might mean um, you're getting reports and you're really understanding the reports. But I think the more that you can self-teach and the more that you can mm. um, work with your agency and really understand how they're doing it is it, super valuable because you'll understand what's going on uh, far, far better um, and um get the ideas that, that, that you need for your marketing to perform. And, and then the last one um, I wrote uh, is around content and that question of more is more or less is more. And I think um, there's probably very few businesses that can do more is more um, because it, it's, it takes a lot of effort and energy. And so if you're, if you're not one of those businesses, less is probably more and you just got to make sure it's, it's the right stuff. So, what does your audience want to hear about? Um, are you offering them value and are you giving it to them in the right channels? Mm. And I think that's a, a far better approach to content than just, than just um, endlessly spewing it out and not really listening to, to whether it's working or not. Yeah, I like that. It's true because I've, I, a lot of companies are just pushing out noise online, like especially LinkedIn. It's just so overused and people are just posting mm. to post and not actually thinking about what they're posting because everybody else is posting. But yeah, um, do less <laughs> because less is more. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for being on the show. Um, where can people find you online if they wanted to reach out to Tribe or Anthony? What's your handles? Yeah, so my handles, uh, as far as I know, is are, are Anthony Sverskis. Um, okay. So my surname is Lithuanian. I'll let, let the users guess how to spell it. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that's that's just it. Um, we'll tag everything below. Yeah, absolutely. Well. That's probably the easiest way. And uh, Tribe, just at Tribe, is it on Instagram? Yeah, at Tribe. So I think at Tribe on LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, fortunate to get that that amazing handle. Um, and website is tribe tribegroup.co. .co. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show, Anthony. My pleasure, Belinda. That was a lot of fun. It was super fun. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for tuning in for Wake Up With Focus. We'd like to say a special thank you to BizPay, our main podcast sponsor. In the current economic climate, maintaining good cash flow is a priority for all businesses. BizPay gives companies the opportunity to hire the professional service providers they need now and pay later by splitting an invoice into four easy monthly installments. For more information on how BizPay can help you improve your cash flow, grow your business, or attract new clients, please visit bizpay.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe if you enjoyed this episode. And for more tips and tricks on how to propel your digital presence to success, follow the Focus Group on our socials via Focus Recruitment and at Focus Media Original on Instagram. Connect with us on LinkedIn at Focus Group and at Focus Media or get in touch directly, Belinda at focus.com.au. 